That's a wonderful prayer as we come to God's Word together. Uh, each, each stanza is, is uh, worth thinking about as we come to the Word of God. Uh, oh, grant us grace, Almighty Lord, to read. And not just read, but to mark, to, to carefully pay attention to your Holy Word, to receive its truths with meekness, never being wise in our own eyes, but trusting His wisdom and submitting to it and living by His holy precepts. That's our prayer as we come. Daniel 7, 9 through 14 is our Old Testament text. <clears throat> Daniel 7, 9 through 14. This is the Word of God. Let's give it our full attention. I watched till thrones were put in place. And the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. I watched till the beast was slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As for the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. And our New Testament text, Matthew 25, 31 through 46. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the holy angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And He will set the sheep on His right hand, but the goats on the left. Then the King will say to those on His right hand, Come, you blessed of My Father, Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in, or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these my brethren, you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on the left hand, 
Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not take me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. Our God, we pray that you would graciously, by your almighty spirit, open our hearts to receive your word. Fix our attention firmly on the things unseen. Draw up all our interest in you and in your word that we might hear and receive it in truth as the very word of God and not be those who hear and walk away unchanged, but grow in grace. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been working through Matthew 24 and 25 now for several weeks together. This is the fifth and final discourse in Matthew's Gospel. His Gospel is somewhat organized around these five major blocks of teaching, uh, starting with the Sermon on the Mount and ending with the Sermon on the Mount of Olives. And that's what we've been working through, this Sermon on the Mount of Olives. And in this final block of teaching, this final discourse, his main point, our Lord's main point, has been readiness. Know what time it is. The kingdom of heaven is at the door. It's on the doorstep. It's it's about to open the door and come in in all its glory, the glory of final judgment. So know what time it is and know how to live accordingly. Have your life shaped by that. Have your life controlled by that. Have have every decision you make and, and the whole all, all your habits have it all shaped by readiness for the kingdom to come. Jesus has pounded this point home over and over and over in this sermon. And, and brothers and sisters, it's a message that we desperately need to hear. We need it hit again and again. And again, be ready. Be ready because we're so quick to, to, to slack off in this and to, and to lose that sense of readiness and anticipation. We are to live as those who are on the cusp of eternity. In 2 Timothy 4, 8, Paul sums up living as a Christian as those who long for Christ's appearing, those who love his appearing. The New Testament ends. Think of the way the whole, it's not just the New Testament, think of the way the whole Bible ends. Come, Lord Jesus. Anticipation, waiting, readiness. That's, that's the way the whole story of Scripture ends. And, and that, that's to be our heart's attitude towards God. We are to be a heavenly-minded people. Lord, Lord, come. We get so distracted by the things of this world. Our affections get cluttered. Right? With, with all these other things, with the mess of, of, uh, of distractions of this life, uh, we need our lives cleared clean and focused on the one thing of the kingdom of heaven and to be heavenly minded looking forward to his coming. 
So Jesus hammers this point home. Be ready. Be ready. Waking us up. We can summarize what we've covered so far with three words. Um, and this, this is probably a good way for you just to keep in your head the whole of this final sermon that Jesus preaches, Matthew 24 and 25. Uh, be ready. First of all, be ready by endurance. Enduring hardship, enduring suffering, enduring wars and rumors of wars, enduring false teaching. That's the first section of the sermon. Be ready by endurance. And we've seen that. But the second piece that he says is be ready by vigilance. Be watchful, be awake, be alert. Uh, your heart pointed heavenward. Be vigilant. And third, be watchful by diligence. Diligence. Useful service. He's entrusted us with a stewardship. How are we using it? That's what we saw last week. Diligence. Be ready by these things. Endurance, vigilance, and diligence. But there's one more thing. How does Jesus end his sermon about readiness? What does he add here to these, to these things? Love. Be ready by loving. Who? Well, Christ, of course, but for Christ's sake, loving Christ's needy people. That's, that's the main point of this sermon. He's saying to us, be ready. Be ready for Judgment Day by living your life in love for, in self-giving love for Christ's needy people. We're going to work through the text here under a few headings. The first one is this, certain judgment. Verses 31 through 33, certain judgment. Jesus tells us here as, the, as he starts this section, this final section of his sermon, he tells us that he is going to come in glory and judge the whole world. That's a shocking claim, isn't it, brothers and sisters? For Jesus to say to his disciples, there he is, he's a man just like them, looks just like them. He is a man who has been marked by sorrows. In some ways, he doesn't appear just like a man, but less than other men because of the suffering he's, he's been going through and, and will go through. He's gone through, uh, gone through so much, and, and he will go through much more. He's a servant who's come to humble himself to die. And here he is, this weak, very ordinary-appearing man, and he says, I am going to come, and I'm going to judge the whole world. That's a preposterous thing to say. Jesus' disciples are about to see Jesus stripped naked, whipped, nailed to a cross, hung up to die, and look like the most helpless person in the world. And then buried, dead, in the ground. And he says, I'm going to come and judge the whole world. I'm going to come and I'm going to, I'm going to gather all the nations and I'm going to be full of glory and I'm going to judge everyone. It's a tremendous, tremendous thing to say. He's reminding his disciples He's saying to them, you're about to see me brought low. When you see me brought low, remember my promise. I'll be, I'll be high and lifted up. That, that after this, I'll be glorified. Remember that I am, yes, the crucified Son of Man, but also the one who will come in, in God-like glory. Not just, not just glory like God, actually, but the very glory of God. What does he say? He, he says that he's going to come in his own glory. When the Son of Man comes in his glory... He says, on the clouds of heaven surrounded by angelic armies. What does one angel do in Scripture when he shows up? He terrifies people. Jesus is going to come, he says here in, this, in verses 31 to 33, he says that he will come in his glory and all the angels with him. 
It'll be a terrifying, terrifying thing. He tells us that he will call everyone to himself and then judge them. All the people who have ever lived, men, women, boys, girls, old, young, every person who has ever existed, uh, he will call to himself and he'll gather before him and he will give the judgment and the verdict and he will decide everyone's fate forever. As we said, this is a preposterous claim, isn't it, for him to make? Um, If someone else made that claim, you'd say they're crazy, right? If someone else said to you that they were going to do this, you'd you'd laugh. You'd, You'd write them off as a lunatic. But our Lord Jesus is not anyone else, is he? Throughout this gospel, we've seen the tremendous authority that his word carries the tremendous authority that his works carry. He is able to raise the dead, calm the storm, make the blind to see with a word. And now he says, I'm going to come and I'm going to judge the world. So trust his word that what he says he will do. He's going to come in judgment. It's an absolute certainty. And then he tells us that on that day of judgment, he's going to divide all people. The first way to live, then. He draws a picture here of two ways to live in light of this coming judgment that will lead to two eternal destinies. The first way to live is a life of self-giving love for Christ's needy people. Uh, the first thing we see here in the, in the passage about this life that he's talking about, this life that is blessed, is that it comes from the sovereign grace of God. Uh, this, this passage is sometimes referred to by people who want to say that we earn our salvation by, by works. But notice the first thing Jesus says in verse 34 about those who will be blessed by God. What does he say? He says, Come, you blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Why, why does he say that first? Well, because the blessing of God is what comes first. It's the grace of God that comes before any obedience comes. It's the, it's the gospel of the grace of Christ. Jesus doesn't say, come, you who have obeyed my Father by your own choice and by your own righteousness have earned the kingdom of heaven, inherit the kingdom. He says, no, come, you who have received this free grace of God by the sovereign grace of God. Just like with Abraham, right? Abraham worshiping idols in Ur, and God says, come be mine. Sovereign grace. That is the reason for these ones who are blessed in this passage. And Jesus says that it's, it's rooted in the eternal purpose of God. He says this, this kingdom is prepared for you from before the foundation of the world, before you were born, before you did anything good or bad. God set his sovereign choice and his love on his elect. And so that, that, that's the first thing to say, brothers and sisters. About, but we're going to launch into some things here in a few minutes that Christ calls us to. And, and they're, they're, they're weighty things, serious things. But the first thing to say is that we are saved by the love of God, the choice of God, and the grace of God. And Jesus makes that point. That, that point so clear. We see it in the way that these righteous react when Jesus commends them. They say, when do we do these things, Lord? Their confidence is not in themselves. It's in, it's in Christ. So don't read this passage, loved ones, and come away thinking that your eternal destiny on the day of judgment depends on whether or not you're good enough for God. Jesus' verdict on that day, on your life, will be based on God and His grace, not on you. 
That being said, however, Jesus then goes on to show us that our lives must have fruit. That if we are the blessed of God, the chosen of God by his grace, then our lives need to have some fruit that that demonstrates that. And he goes on to say this in verses 35 and 36. He lays out what that fruit is. He says, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then Jesus says, As surely I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these my brethren, you did it to me. It's a striking thing. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an amazing thing that our Lord Jesus says there. He's the judge. He's the sovereign God. But he says that he himself identifies in the closest possible way with his people. He can say about, about all his people, how you treat them is, is how you treat me. Jesus sees everything you do to his people as something you do to him. We see this in his words to Saul on the Damascus Road in Acts 9, verse 4. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul's on his way to persecute Christians, to drag them off to prison. But Jesus sees what he's doing and he says, why are you persecuting me? Jesus is, is raised up in heaven. He's in glory at that point. And yet he still identifies so closely with his people. And so, brothers and sisters, we can, we can, uh, we can think, of, think about this uh, in, in an approximate way, perhaps with a family relationship. The way a mother feels when she sees her child being picked on, or maybe the way a mother feels when she sees her child being treated well. She takes it personally, right? She feels, uh, she, she feels anger and, and she's upset when she sees her child picked on. She feels, she feels joy when she sees the child being treated well. And in a similar way, that's what Christ is saying. But it's closer than that. It's even more than that because his spirit is in us. We are united with him in an unbreakable union. And so he says, these are the people that I died for and that I love. And how you treat them is how you treat me. What does this mean? Well, when you speak harshly to a Christian, you're speaking harshly to the Lord Jesus Christ. When you gossip about a Christian, you're gossiping about our Lord Jesus Christ. When you hurt, when you're impatient with a Christian, Christ says, you're being impatient with me. When you ignore a suffering Christian, Christ says, you're ignoring me. But here Jesus stresses the positive side, doesn't he? As he's talking to these people who've lived this this blessed, righteous life. He tells them that when they care for the needy and the hurting who are his people, that they are doing it for him. So when you go to visit the shut-in, who is Christ's? You're going to visit our Lord Jesus Christ. That's how he takes it. He takes it that personally. When you, when you see an email in your inbox, someone needs a meal, someone's sick, someone needs help, someone needs prayer, and you do it for them, Christ says, you did it for me. He, he takes it personally. When you do this with your, with your children, your, your, your young, needy children, when you care for them, even though their needs are constant, 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 Christ says, they're mine, 
You're doing it for me. When you see someone discouraged, lonely, or hurting in our church, and you write them a card, pay them a visit, make a phone call, Christ says, you're doing it for me. Christ sees the acts of self-giving love for his needy people as something you're doing for him. We're so quick to come up with excuses to push away needy people uh, and to make excuses not to serve others. We'll, we'll serve when it's convenient or when it's not too inconvenient, but when it requires a cost, when it gets difficult, um, uh, that, that's when the rubber meets the road. Jesus tells us to see himself in each other, in our neediness, and to serve them. Calvin puts it like this. He says, Christ is either neglected or honored in the person of those who need our assistance. So then, whenever we are reluctant to assist the poor, let us place before the eye, our eyes the Son of God, to whom it would be base sacrilege to refuse anything. This is what Christ says is the defining mark of a blessed and righteous life, of a Christian life. The defining mark of a Christian life. Because it was the defining mark of His life, wasn't it? To love and have compassion on those who needed love and compassion. And on Judgment Day, this is what He'll look for in your life. Where's the fruit of the grace that I gave you? Did you love my needy people? That's the first way to live that he shows us. The second way, verses 41 through 45, is a life of self-deceived neglect of Christ's people. Self-deceived neglect of Christ's people. He paints us a picture here of the opposite kind of life, the kind of life that he as the judge on the last day will curse and condemn. We see this in verses 41 and following. He says, Then he will say, to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not take me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. Note what he says, brothers and sisters. Note it carefully. What, what does he say? Does he say, um, you were a murderer? You, 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 you committed adultery? You were a rapist? What does he say to those that he condemns in the passage? It's what you didn't do. It's, it's the things you neglected that condemn them. It's no small matter to the judge, our Lord Jesus Christ, for you to live your life for your own comfort and to avoid self-giving love for his people. If your goal in life is to keep self-sacrifice for others at arm's length and avoid compassion and kindness for others, then Christ says you'll face His judgment. That if, if you live your life without doing inconvenient acts of mercy and kindness and love for others, then you are neglecting Christ Himself. And on the day of judgment, He will say, you did not love me. Second here, Jesus tells us that those who've lived this way of, of neglecting to love him by neglecting to love others, that, that they, they're self-deceived. They thought they would be welcomed into heaven. Um, they are convinced of their own goodness. They are ignorant of their sin. They, they, uh, in verse 44, it's so interesting the way they respond to the charges Jesus brings against them. Jesus, in, in, in the charges that he laid out there, he spelled it out very carefully. 
But in verse 44, as they repeat the charges back to him, they rush through it. What do they say? Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick and in prison and did not minister to you? It's like, it's like when they rush up the little bit of fine print at the end of the advertisement. We don't want you to hear this bit, right? Let's just run through it. That's what they're doing with Christ. They're trying to minimize the charges. Or it's not a big deal. When, when do we do these things? Um, but Jesus tells them, as often as they fail to love others, they fail to love him. And they might not see their sin so clearly, but he does. So take the warning, brothers and sisters. Sin is deceptive. Our hearts are self-deceptive. We don't like to own up to our sin and acknowledge our sin. Romans 2.15 tells us that our sinful hearts constantly make excuses for ourselves. Proverbs 24, verse 12 puts it very clearly. It says, Behold, we did not... uh, Excuse me. It says, If you say, Behold, we did not know this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay man according to his work? Thomas Brooks, Puritan writer, wrote this. He said, Many are now dropped into hell that have formerly presumed of their going to heaven. We think we're all right. Haven't done any big things wrong. But Jesus says, I see which you've neglected. And I see your sin. And so, brothers and sisters, we need to be, we need to be very careful that we don't presume that, 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 we're, that we're all set. But that we go to God and we pray with the words of the psalmist. Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there's any grievous way in me and lead me in everlasting life. Or to make that prayer, Lord, show me my sin and help me to repent of it. Lord, you know it. You show me and help me to confess it to you. So this is the picture Jesus points. First of all, the blessed life, the righteous life, loving others for his sake. Second of all, the cursed life of neglect of loving others and self-deception. And then he pronounces the judgments. First of all, he pronounces judgment on the wicked, those who've neglected to love him by their neglect of loving others. And his judgment is terrible. It is, it is unimaginably terrible. Verse 41, depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Those are terrible words. Depart from me, you cursed, he says, into everlasting fire. We, we cannot imagine the depth of the suffering of the wicked in hell. Jesus compares it to fire. He says it's a place designed for Satan and his angels. It's, 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 it's designed to be a fitting punishment for the devil. And he says that's where the wicked will go, who neglect to love others for my sake. We, we cannot imagine the depth of this, brothers and sisters. We also can't imagine the duration of it. Everlasting fire. On and on and on. One writer says, The damned shall live as long in hell as God himself shall live in heaven. As long as God is in heaven, the unrighteous and the wicked will be suffering in hell for their own sin. Now, it's hard to accept. It's beyond anything we can imagine. 
We wonder if it's just. But sin against an eternal God is sin that demands an eternal retribution. This is what Christ clearly says. Do we have more wisdom, compassion, love, and mercy than He? And this is what His justice demands. That hell is forever. This is what awaits the wicked. So we can't imagine the depth of this suffering or the duration of this. uh, but, But beyond this, worst of all, are Jesus' words in verse 41, depart from me. To hear Christ say that, brothers and sisters, depart from me. I never knew you. I, I will have nothing to do with you for all eternity. Leave. To hear Christ himself say that to you, to, to have his goodness and his grace and his, his life and love cut off from you forever is hell. Sinners in hell will be under the crushing burden of their guilt without a Savior, without the forgiveness of sins, under the shame of of their sin, and will not know a single taste of God's love cut off from our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what awaits those who neglect Christ and His people. What's the other end? That's the eternal destiny of the wicked. What's, What's the destiny of the righteous? This is where Jesus ends. For those whose lives bear the fruit of God's grace, Jesus promises eternal life. The end of verse 46, he says that he will welcome the righteous into eternal life. This is the opposite of everlasting punishment, isn't it? This This is everlasting joy and reward. This is Jesus' way of summarizing all that is ours in him in the gospel of his kingdom. He says here that it's, it's eternal, it's, it's without end, that it will go on and on. We know the words of Amazing Grace, the last stanza we love to sing. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing his praise than when we first begun. 10,000 years in, you know you've got more time. That, 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 that there is no end to the joys of heaven. That just as we said earlier, hell will last as long as God's lasts. Well, Heaven will last as long as he lasts as well. The joys of this life are so short-lived. Our our lives just, they race forward at breakneck pace. Things fall apart. Uh, uh, The the suffering of, of death casts its long shadow over all of our days. Time wears out all our joys and all our capacity for joy, but not in heaven. In heaven, quite the opposite. It will be everlasting joy. You will only increase in happiness. But Jesus does not just mean that our life in heaven will go on and on. He means it will be full. It will be rich. It will be, it'll be uh, all, all that he uh, created it to be. With resurrection bodies like his, which cannot get sick or grow old or die, we will live in a state of full joy that lasts forever. And most of all, we'll be face-to-face with Christ. That's, that's where all the blessing of heaven comes from. Sinclair Ferguson tells of a dream that he had as a teenager. And uh, he, he died, uh, in, in this dream, he died and went to heaven. And uh, friends were coming to see him, friends who passed away before him, coming to see him to greet him at heaven's gates. Uh, but he was just pushing them away, saying, uh, let me get to Jesus. I want to see Jesus. Because that's what makes heaven, heaven. John 17, verse 3, Jesus says, This is eternal life, 
that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's the reward of the righteous in heaven. At the day of judgment, Jesus will throw open the doors to all those who are righteous and say, come in. Come into my joy. Our larger catechism, question and answer 90, puts it very well. Uh, We read this in church together last week, but let me read it again. Uh, Precious words. It says, At the day of judgment, the righteous, being caught up to Christ in the clouds, shall be set on his right hand, and there openly acknowledged and acquitted, shall join with him in the judging of reprobate angels and men, and shall be received into heaven, where they shall be fully and forever freed from all sin and misery, filled with inconceivable joys, made perfectly holy and happy, both in body and soul, in the company of innumerable saints and angels, but especially in the immediate vision and fruition of God the Father, of our Lord Jesus Christ, and of the Holy Spirit to all eternity. So this is the way Christ ends. He says the righteous will go into everlasting life. And that's, that's the end of his final block of teaching in, in Matthew's Gospel. He says, it's so clear, these are the two ways to live. And these are the two corresponding ends. The righteous life of self-giving love for my needy people that leads to eternal life or the life of, of living for yourself, ignoring Christ's people that leads to eternal condemnation. Brothers and sisters, Christ is not kidding around. He says to us, he presents us with this, and he says to us, you will have to give account on the day of judgment. Did you neglect my needy people? Or did you love them? Did you love me by loving them? And as he gives the final verdict on your life, it will send you either to heaven or hell. Which will it be? If you're like me, you answer the question by saying, well, I know what I want it to be. I want it to be that Jesus says, Blessed of my Father, from before the foundation of the world, enter the inheritance prepared for you. Because you did this and you did this. I, I want to hear my Savior say those things, but, but brothers and sisters, don't, can't we all say that we, we, we're aware that that's, our, our lives do not measure up to the way they should? That the times we've neglected others, that the sinful neglect of, of, of loving Christ needy people, that our tendency to live for ourselves and, 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 and not for Christ and his people. If we look just at our own lives, we don't have much hope of a, of a good verdict, do we? So is Jesus just trying to, to trouble our conscience and leave us without assurance? If we read beyond Matthew 25... These are a couple of first verses of Matthew 26. He finishes this word to the disciples. And then Matthew 26, verses 1 through 2. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Now that's where our hope is, isn't it? That before the Son of Man comes in judgment, and gives the verdict on our lives. First, he comes to suffer the wrath of God for us, for sinners. And he comes to to live a righteous life of self-giving love, self-giving love, self-giving love to the point of death for us. And, And brothers and sisters, that's where our confidence and our assurance and our hope lie. 
that He is the one who paid the fullness of the price of our sins and endured the eternity of God's wrath and all its depth and duration on the cross, and that He is our Savior. And that when we stand before Him on Judgment Day, we'll say, Lord, it's Your righteousness that covers me and Your sacrifice that atones for my sins. And also this, that if we know Him, if we know this Savior, then surely by His Spirit, He will work in us the things He asks from us, won't He? So that on Judgment Day, we'll be like the, we'll be like the righteous in the, in, in, in the story here. Lord, when did we do these things? But I say, by my grace, I worked it in you. And I saw it, and here it is. Loved ones, that's our confidence. So let's walk in faithfulness. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you'd make us ready for your coming. That you would orient our whole lives towards you and your kingdom and, and your, your coming. We pray that you would make us ready by, by teaching us to love as you have loved us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.